Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is James Lavish, who has 25 years of institutional investing and risk management experience, mainly in hedge funds and private equity. James studied political science at Yale University, executive fintech at Cornell University, and is a chartered financial analyst. More recently, he founded The Looking Glass, an all-in-one educational platform built with the intention of empowering individuals to take control of their financial futures. And he writes the Informationist newsletter, which simplifies financial concepts for its readers. James is also a Bitcoiner, so he can help us understand the archaic finance of the fiat world while speaking the modern language of Bitcoin. He joins us today to discuss bonds and global markets. 
particularly the treasury market. James, thank you so much. For yeah, thank on. you for having me, Safe. It's great to be on and uh, see all your happy faces this morning. <laughs> thank you, sir. Thank you. So um, I guess we could just begin with how you found Bitcoin and uh, your journey from the world of hedge funds and private equity to you know, my wife said when, when people ask my wife what I do, I mean, I tell people I'm self-unemployed right now, but um, she, <laughs> she likes to tell people I just shit post on Twitter. <laughs> so and it's fair. It's Don't fair, we all? you know, so uh, that's a good question. And like you said, I, I came from the institutional investment world. And so say if I started actually on this on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, some of your listeners may have seen recent podcasts. I did a, a podcast with uh, Peter McCormick, the, the What Bitcoin Did podcast, a, f- a couple of weeks ago, and we went into pretty deep detail on my on my background. So I won't bore you guys with that here. Uh, so if you want to know more about that, you can check it out there. But basically, I was a hockey player. I got hurt, uh, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I had student loans, and I needed to make money. And I was in New York. I got a chance to meet a bunch of people on Wall Street, and they're I met some people who said, well, you're pretty good at math. So what do you think about trading on, on the street? And I said, you know, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am good at math. So they put me on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange trading something called ADR arbitrage. So this really, this, this matters um, because it, it kept me in that world of arbitrage for many years. I went to hedge funds, I uh, traded merger arbitrage, risk arbitrage, traded distressed investing, convert arbitrage, you know, just about anything in, in that arbitrage world. And what's important about that is I was always chasing a return, a, a spread over either the U.S. Treasury, the Fed funds rate or LIBOR. Right. So always chasing that spread and never really thinking about the significance of that, which will, which I will get to. And it's really important because of, of the Bitcoin standard and what, you know, clicked with me when I read your book. So moving forward, I, I, I've spent many years on Wall Street and somewhere around in the middle of 2018, I had decided I wanted, I had some extra capital. I, I had some discretionary capital I wanted to invest. And I was looking around, I heard about this Bitcoin thing and, you know, it had, it had run up over $20,000. It came all the way back. It was down around maybe $3,500. And, you know, I wanted to dig into it and being an institutional investor, you do what an institutional investor does, which is I tap the experts for the experts for information. And so I talked to the, the, you know, the technology analysts on, on Wall Street, all the best technology analysts. And every single one of them, bar none across the board, told me, avoid it at all costs. It's a Ponzi scheme. There's no underlying value. It's worth nothing. You'll lose all your money. And so I didn't invest in it. And, and to this day, safe, that is easily the worst non-trade I've, I've ever done. So, uh, I mean, look, it's crashed all the way down to 16, 17,000 here. I could have bought it at 3,500 back then. Anyway, flash forward, you know, we get to the pandemic and I'm leaving my, my hedge fund private equity firm and I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. I've been talking to my son. He's a, he's a senior at Cornell University. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And he said, dad, you know, a lot of my friends and I've been digging into this crypto stuff. I think you ought to check it out again. You ought to give it another chance. And he convinced me and, you know, like, like we all do, 
he convinced me. Well, maybe you didn't save, but some of the other people, I know most people did this. I, uh, I bought some Ethereum. I bought some Cardano. I bought some Solana. And, um, but this is what you do on Wall Street, right? You, you leg into a trade. You buy a little bit of something and it forces you to do research on it. You have capital at risk, even if it's not a lot, just a little bit, you have it at risk. So you have to go do research on it. And so I did. And I started digging in and about three weeks in after watching some Michael Saylor videos and, uh, and hearing Jeff Booth talk and, you know, and I come across your book. I, w- I was reading that and I, it all just clicked. And I was like, I've got to get out of these shit coins. This is, they're, they're worth nothing. <laughs> they're Ponzi schemes. There's no underlying value. I had to get out. So, and I moved everything into Bitcoin. And this is the early, this is uh, late 2020, early 2021. So I've, it, I really haven't been in this space very long, but I've been absolutely obsessed with money, understanding the, the markets and how they're manipulated, understanding how money is manipulated. And that's really, uh, that's really what brought me here. And so now flash forward all the way to today, I'm looking at the, the interest rates and thinking about spread over LIBOR. And my question is, why are we even chasing that? Why do we have to chase a return to keep up with inflation? That's absolutely ridiculous. And so I've, I've, uh, I've decided to dedicate the, the remainder of my career to this space with the informationist and, you know, I'm, I'm, we, I can't talk about it too much here, but I'm starting an investment fund that is Bitcoin focused, uh, nothing else. And, you know, this is where I want to be. That was an, an insanely long answer to a, who are you question, but <laughs> no, no, we could, uh, we could dig in much more into it and, um, we will dig into it more because what I'm, uh, what I'm, what I'm really interested in, I mean, I, I think you have a great knack for explaining uh, fiat concepts, but I also, like to would like to pick your brain on how uh, the Bitcoin looking glass helped you um, understand uh, fiat and yeah. bonds um, and markets better. This is, I think, what's really uh, fascinating about uh, people who make this move from uh, you know, 20, 25 years in private equity and hedge funds and then uh, yeah, exactly. joining, joining the army of plebs from all over the world uh, to the same conclusion, basically. It's much, uh, it's a uh, super it's, smart crowd that we are surrounded with. Right. So um, yeah, that's a good question. And, and, and so what happened was I was on one of the internet, one of the Twitter spaces and, uh, and I was up on stage with Greg Foss and afterwards he he uh he contacted me he's like hey listen we've got to talk more so we talked a few times because we you know we speak each other's language we under, we've traded the same instruments we understand the you know how things are valued and and why it's so important um to to have bitcoin as as uh as an out um so and he said i'm starting this this educational platform with these guys, uh, Daz Bia and Jason Sansoni, um, and, uh, Seb Bunny and you, you got Max here. And so he said, I think it's re- re- what we want to do is we want to give pl- people a place to go to first, first understand what money is, then understand how it's manipulated and then understand and come to the conclusion that Bitcoin is obviously the answer. 
And so it's a, it's a, it's a place where, and it, it's a program that these guys have built. I didn't build it out. Greg and I are more um, just advisors. And, you know, we don't do any of the, the hard work that all these other guys are doing. So they deserve all the credit. And they've written an incredibly, it, it, it's, it's a comprehensive, but really easy to understand program. And you, and you, you can, you just, you sign up and you, and you can decide it's like a course, right? So you can, you can take one module, you could take five modules. It's like Netflix. You can just, you know, binge on it if you want. But the, the important thing is that it's super easy to understand and it'll walk you down that road and it doesn't put Bitcoin right in your face right away. And, and I think, you know, what's important about that and understanding where I've come from and knowing just how difficult it is to get normal people to understand money, truly think about it and understand why Bitcoin is different from everything else and how it solves so many problems. You have to walk them down that road. You can't just say Bitcoin's the only one because they just, they, they, it's almost like they bristle, right? So, and it's, it's almost, it's too much for them to understand at first. It was too much for me to understand at first, you know, I mean, I'd been in investing for many, many, many years, and that probably that probably made me negatively predisposed to the idea of something else. I mean, I had benefited from the old system greatly, and I didn't want it to change. Uh, but there's no denying that there are massive structural and unfair problems in that world. And so that's what we want to do with the with the looking glass. And it's, and it's being translated to um, many languages across the world. And uh, we want it available to everybody to, to, uh, to dig in for themselves and get to that conclusion themselves. That's fantastic. Yeah. I think it's, it's really great what you guys are doing. I think it's something that's very desperately needed because um, it's fascinating. Um, something we remark upon in this podcast very often. It's, it's fascinating how little financial education you get in your uh, fiat schooling education. You know, you, you're, you memorize the capitals of countries you will never visit, and you memorize parts of uh, you know the different parts of the cell, which uh, might make for a useful trivia question someday. But for the vast majority of people that are not going to be specialized in anything in biology, it's just um, mental exercises. It's just jumping through hoops. You know, you need to remember what this is and what that is, and it's not really relevant for you. Of course, there's nothing wrong with learning those things, but That's it's right. far more pressing for the vast majority of people to figure out what is money, how money works, how to use it, because that determines your financial uh, security, your survival, and truly even your survival. Uh, it's it's a matter of life. Yeah, and that's it. And it's evil that it's not taught in schools. You know, one of the when when my kids were uh, were young, and we we would eat dinner around this round table every single night, and um, and you know, I didn't want to make every every meal a lesson, but just telling stories and helping them understand money and investments and all that, like. Back then, before I found Bitcoin, I just wanted them to understand money because I knew they weren't going to learn about it at all in school. You know, uh, I mean, even me being on Wall Street, I didn't, you know, we learned, we, you get put in these little pods, you get put in these silos of what you're, what you're in charge of, what, what you're trading, what you're investing in. And unless you go out and talk to other people on the street, you don't understand all the other uh, instruments out there. So I had no idea really how mortgages worked, the mortgage world. So the first time that I got a mortgage, I had to do my own research. 
I, I, there was not, nobody taught me anything about that, you know? And now the great thing is that there's the, with the internet and the massive amount of information that's being printed every day, if you can find the right information and be directed to it, uh, you can, you can get an education, but I, I don't know. And I don't know, say if I, I don't know if it's, uh, I don't know if it's, uh, intentional, but I do know that there is no, there's no real incentive for the, the politicians, for the, the bankers in charge. There's no incentive for Jamie Diamond to teach you how to invest your money to teach you what's what's right and wrong with uh with how you take on risk he wants to manage that for you it's his business you know so the people in charge of all the money they're not incentivized to help you understand it and how it works and just how um you know uneven the 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 possibilities are for the demographics of of the whole world and it's just, it, you know, it's getting worse here in the United States day by day. So, yeah, I mean, the question of whether it is intentional or not is very difficult to answer. But I think um, what I try and argue in the fiat standard in general is that um, what happens to education when it's separated from the market test and when it is financed from above? You know, it sounds like such a good idea. Like who could be against the idea of let's just give everybody an education, make sure that even if your dad is an alcoholic deadbeat who doesn't want to spend any money on you, you still get to get an education. So, And all it takes is, you know, it's a small amount of money to secure an education for a person. It sounds like it would be the case in theory, but of course, in practice, we see that uh, public schooling is much more expensive than private schooling when you measure the cost. Uh, I've seen studies on this in D.C. Uh, a guy called Corey DeAngelis um, writes about this. It ends up being more expensive to put a student through public schools, which are performing very terribly compared to private schools. So it is more expensive, but still... You'd think it is a nice idea because, you know, at least everybody gets educated. But the reality of the matter is once the financing comes from above rather than from the people themselves, then there is no market feedback for the quality of what's going on. So who determines whether people should be learning various trivia about geography of countries they will never visit or whether it's going to be... um, you know, basic financial education. Well, in a free market, people who go to schools that teach basic finance would benefit at the and, and do better. And over time, they'd want their children to learn that. They'd pay more for those schools, and those schools would outcompete the other schools. But in a system where this is completely separated, where you have an enormous amount of funding that comes from above, and therefore a very powerful bureaucracy above that has essentially limitless money to determine curricula, even for public and even even for private schools, which you know that they're under the influence of government in various ways, and in universities in particular, then that feedback of the market is severed, and then it becomes very easy for education to just serve the interests of the people carrying out those bureaucratic tasks. And so instead of um, instead of thinking about what's better for the student, because you know the student is the one that pays, and you want to get the customer back you want them to send their kids to the school you want them to succeed so that they tell other people yeah it's because i succeeded because i went to that school you uh, care more about pleasing the bureaucrats who pay from above and so it's you don't need to posit the kind of uh, perverse uh, deliberate conspiracy in order to do those things you can just see how the incentives play out in this in this way it's much more beneficial for people to 
go along with uh, easy to teach nonsense. And you see this in schools and you see this in universities. It's why we end up with essentially an enormous number of pseudosciences being taught, you know, whether it's in macroeconomics or nutrition or uh, climate, if you ask me, there's no corrective mechanism. You know, why, how do people continue to learn these uh, things? Well, because they can, because there's no uh, corrective mechanism that punishes them for learning absurdities and rewards them for learning things that are useful. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, <laughs> it, it's hard to argue against that, you know. Um, and you just and Jeff Booth likes to say, just look at look at the incentives, you know, and and you'll and then you'll you'll understand, you know, what what the motivation is. And it's it's true. The incentives are for power to be consolidated at the top uh to be for money to be consolidated at the top that's the incentive you know and so yeah of course and it's it's evil and i think people like people like yeah. you and me and, and a number of others that that we that we're talking about here they're we're done with it you know we're i'm not going to feed into that system anymore so The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the fiat standard and the Bitcoin standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, and it's becoming uh, harder and harder to maintain uh, the, the, the Ponzi going because I think, uh, as we're going to be discussing now, it's straining at the seams as it is. So um, let's begin in first principles. What is a bond? Let's... let's begin from scratch what is a bond and why is it a scam that's a good question so uh well if you're talking about treasury bonds any a bond is just a, it's just a company borrowing money from some from people right or i mean it doesn't even have to be a company we you could issue a bond and borrow money because you um you know you have this podcast you want to uh, grow it so you need to borrow money in order to grow that and so but the thing is the time value of money, right? So if you, if, if you want to borrow money from me today, well, there, there's a time value that's associated with that. So I need to pay you interest on that in order to make it worth it for you to not use that money today. Right. So, or for me, not use that money today. So, um, you're going to have to pay me interest on that. So you borrow money from me. 
you pay me interest every single year, and then you pay back all that money to me on top of that interest. And so for me, I don't get to use that money today, but I get to that time value of money going forward, right? So the difference between equity and bond, it confuses people who aren't in investment sometimes, but the, the base, the, you know, just the basic of um, a premise is that a bond is borrowing money and equity is owning part of whatever you are, uh, you're, you're buying, right? So that's the first principle. And the treasury has to issue bonds every single year because it needs to borrow money because it's not covering its costs because it spends too much and it doesn't take in enough uh, income to cover all those expenses. So that's basically the treasury. And why is it a scam? Because if you're, if you invest money in a bond, and you're you're giving up that value of money that you have today if you're not making at least the uh the inflation rate on that bond every single year then you're losing money in real terms every single year and that's why it's a scam because if you look at the interest rate on bonds even today with the interest rate of treasuries that are up around 4% on the 10-year treasury, well, you know, inflation is still over 7%. So how is that? It doesn't, it, it doesn't compensate you for the inflation rate today. So you invest in a bond at 4%, inflation's at 7%, you lost 3% of in real terms of your money. And so the scam is not really the bond as much as the manipulation of money to create this inflation, which has made bonds a a terrible investment the last few years. Yeah, and I think probably there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem here in that, well, why do you need to buy bonds in the first place? Because there is inflation. Um, Because if the money just worked, (laughs) you wouldn't need a bond. The money would just be appreciating and you just hold on to the money and you don't have to worry about the uh, fiscal position of the people you're lending to. And I think this is uh, this is usually underrated. And I mean, in uh, in fiat in fiat world, people think that it's a good thing that well, the value of the currency is devalued, but it's fine because everybody can uh, beat inflation simply by holding on to um, bonds because the bonds compensate. But uh, and and somehow it's it's like an archaic old um, unworkable system that compromises our ability to have economic growth if we don't have inflation. But, uh, you know, in the 19th century, this is how it worked. And, uh, I mean, bonds still existed, but they were far less significant than they are right now uh, as a part of the economic system because you didn't have to, uh, you know, it was it was people in financial markets who got into bonds, but the average person just um, held their savings in the money that they earned. You know, you earned the money that was either physical gold or paper that was redeemable for physical gold. And you just held on to that thing and then it appreciated over time. So you didn't need to take on the risk of lending it out. And you didn't need to be a credit underwriter basically just to be able to save. And this, I think, is an enormously underrated fact, which, um, you know, this is one of the things, one of the benefits of, um, 
or I'd say benefits not for you, but for the people who run those schemes. One of the benefits of mass financial literacy is that people think it's normal that, yeah, well, you just need to become a credit underwriter and figure out the uh, normal credit health uh conditions of every possible borrower in the world and then you'll figure out who to lend to (laughs) and you know (laughs) that way you'll get to keep the earnings that you've already earned you know you have your job as an engineer or as a doctor or as a dancer or as an athlete and you make your money and then you need to go do another job which is go be a credit underwriter figure out the credit position of coca-cola or the u.s government or somebody else and lend them so that you know you take on a risk and then there is a return that somehow beats the inflation, which I think is enormously um, wasteful and counterproductive because uh, why should you have to earn your money twice? And th- this is really, I think, what it fundamentally comes down to. And then you pay taxes on that interest or that, uh, you know, or that, uh, that the capital gains that you've created from those investments. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, this is the other absurd thing. Fortunate enough, to have enough money, make enough money to cover all of your mandatory expenses and then have some left over to invest it. But the vast majority of people, they are not even meeting inflation. They're not keeping up with, up with inflation, right? So wages need to keep up with inflation in order for you to make enough money to outpace that the mandatory expenses, right? So, I mean, it, it just, it, it's evil. So most people don't have money to just go and invest and they're they're struggling to keep up with the inflation rate why do you think that we have so many too many too too uh income families now i mean how many how many people do you know that the wife doesn't have to work that's just ridiculous right so yeah it's a lot more common among bitcoiners you'll notice and i think that's extremely telling because uh, once you have this idea well it's it's not so much about um having a high income as much as it is about keeping your income if you're able to keep your income then you can manage your expenditures in a way where you can have somebody dedicated to the house and somebody focused on earning but if you can't keep your money then you just need to keep Putting everything you can into work, into work right, and then you, and you then can. you give your kids over to to some care provider daily, who may or may not be educating them properly, may be abusing them, may not uh, may be filling their heads with uh, ideas that you wouldn't want them to have, and then you send them to public school, and you know, you're, and you're at the whim of, of the system teaching them or not teaching them important you know life uh, life lessons and values and that and that's that's hard i mean you know and and it's where we've gotten years that's where we've gotten to so i mean how ridiculous is this safe so my my, my dad absolute poverty in the lower east side of manhattan and in, in tenements down there in uh ukrainian russian tenements and he he worked his way he's the first guy to go to college in his uh first person to go to college in his, his family and he worked his way to be a nuclear engineer for GE. And somewhere around the time that I hit high school, my, my family didn't have enough money to, uh, to cover the expenses. So my mom had to go back to work. She became a nurse. How, I mean, that's in the 70s and early 80s. I mean, think of how ridiculous that is that just from the 50s to the 70s, it started becoming very difficult for families not to, uh, not to, have, a, to have a single income, not to have two workers. I mean, it's just, it's so wrong. I mean, so, yeah. 
Yeah, and that's it. Not keeping up with inflation. Yeah, that's that's what it ultimately comes down to. And as you said, I mean, there's so many hurdles that are put in your place that it's really very difficult to beat it. So not only do you need to be a credit underwriter, so good luck on your nuclear uh, engineering career when you have to also study uh, the credit ratings of so many different institutions around the world. You also need to manage your risk, diversify your portfolio, pick uh, proper equities, because like bonds on its own, obviously, is not going to cut uh, cut it on its own. And then I think, the, as you mentioned, the cherry on top is the capital gain. Tax. So you have to pay a capital gains tax in order to um, secure the gains, which are really not gains. Like the, the whole point is that this is just your way of beating inflation. And they're still going to take 20, 30, or maybe 40% of that as a capital gains tax. So when you think about it, it's extremely difficult for anybody to beat inflation reliably on the long run with uh, management fees and capital gains tax. So when, once you talk out, once you take out the capital gains tax and the management fees, it's very difficult to beat inflation in the long run. And it's not just, of course, you know, when people say inflation, they usually mean the CPI, which is... Problematic at best. <laughs> yeah, it's your measure of inflation if you're basically eating BLS baskets, <laughs> uh, which nobody is. Nobody, or at least nobody wants to be eating the BLS basket. The BLS basket is manufactured to understate inflation and people aspire to want to live a better life. You know, people want to live in the neighborhood with no crime. People want to live in the place that allows them to have security and peace and to send their kids and to good school. five years, they're not going to want to eat bugs. I mean... <laughs> and yeah, they're not going to want to eat bugs, which are going to come to your BLS basket right. very soon. And it's, it's those things that are very difficult for people to get. And once you think of these things, you see that the inflation rate in practice is much higher than the 2 3% that's advertised. So for instance, I did a recent uh, thread where um, I looked at housing prices on Zillow, which is you know, where Americans go to buy their homes. So if you go on Zillow, you want to buy a house. Um, I looked at the 10 major cities of the US and I looked at the last 10 years and what happened to the price of houses over, the low, over those 10 years. And I did the average for the 10 cities and it was at around 8.5% per year. That's the actual inflation rate that most people are facing. You know, if you want to live in a city, if you want to benefit from the economies of scale that come from living in modern city life, from the increased productivity of being in large um, labor markets, which is really what most people want to do, at least at the most productive period of their life, then this is what you're facing. Every year, the hurdle that you need to beat is 8.5%. And professional investors struggle to beat that 8.5% per year, especially if you count the management fees and the uh, capital gains tax. It's, it's very difficult. And, and every time you trade, there's a capital gains tax to be taken. And every time you change your thesis and you want to reallocate, there's a capital gains tax to be paid. So it's extremely difficult for people to maintain uh, this uh, and, and to beat it. And that's, that's really what makes this such a um, difficult obstacle. It's a challenge. I mean, it's 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 a challenge for everybody, and and so and that's the problem. You, you just hit on it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, look what happened in in the UK with the with the pension funds. I mean, people have their money invested in in these pension funds in order to retire comfortably. They've made they've worked all their lives, and they have to invest money in pension funds to retire comfortably. And in in a flash, they almost they almost saw all of their money completely decimated overnight. Why? Money manipulation, period. I don't care what anybody says. I, I, I've talked to people in my world 
And their argument is that, well, the, the UK pension funds were just, they, they were taking on undue risk, and what, but they're chasing returns. They are, they're chasing yield. Everybody is chasing yield. And that's what you're getting to here. You're chasing yield day after day after day after day. You're chasing yield. Why? To keep up with inflation. Why? To, to preserve that work that you've done all these years that you have to store in order to not work until you die. And that's just, it's just, it's just wrong. And so that's what, that's what, uh, that's what everybody's doing. They're just chasing yield, chasing yield. And it it makes for, it makes for a, a a not a very pleasant life, you know, not fulfilling. Yeah. Ultimately, this is what it all comes down to. The reason, uh, you know, I, I always say this on this podcast, the yield is the cheese in the mousetrap. And it's just anytime you're being offered yield, you're you're like the, the, the mouse that thinks that they're being offered uh, free cheese. And uh, in the la- last week, we hosted Dylan LeClaire and we were discussing Ponzi's in the crypto world. And again, it's the same thing. The only reason anybody gets into all of those things, like why, why would you put your money in something like Luna, something like FTX? I mean, it's just, if it's too good to be true, it is not true. But yet people go there because they want to chase the yield, because they've been programmed by a century of fiat money to think that your money can't just sit there. It has to sit there and also earn money. And this is, I think, ultimately the real scam here, which is that money itself can't earn money. Money is sterile. Money doesn't yield anything. You know, if you if you exchange the money for a productive asset, the productive asset can yield things. But Fiat world wants to convince you, and this is in my mind, ultimately it's just inflation propaganda. Fiat world wants to convince you that you can get the yield without having to let go of the money. You don't have to buy a cow. You can just keep the money and somehow somebody's cow is going to give you milk uh, while the money is available for you. This is the circle that they want to square essentially, that you don't have to take on risk and you don't have to give up the money. The money is still available for you to spend at any time that you want. But there's still a cow somewhere that's going to be making milk that's going to go to you. And there's, you know, the, the, I think all of the history of financial uh, crises is just uh, people learning that this can't work the hard way and still not learning it. You know, they, they, they fall for this, but they don't really, they don't, they don't ever accept it. They still fall for the next one. And I think, you know, the, in, the, in the crypto world, it's absolutely amazing. You saw Luna's collapse and you saw all of these uh, supposed um, smart money investors in the shitcoin uh, thought leaders, they were also absolutely startled. Like, how could this happen? I can't believe it. Luna was supposed to be safe. It was risk-free. And then they took whatever was left of their money or usually their clients' money and then marched straight into FTX and put it on FTX Earn and then also got shocked and couldn't believe that also their money was not uh, safe at FTX Earn. But it's the same thing. Anybody who's offering you yield is taking on enormous risks and the, these risks are not going to continue to play out properly every time. You know, you're playing Russian roulette and just because you've won a couple of times doesn't mean you're going to win Absolutely. every time. And that's and that's the problem. If if you don't know where the yield is coming from, it's you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. So, what are you? What are your thoughts on the developments in the bond market recently? So, we've sort of spoken now about bonds in general. Historically, though, for majority of people, you could say that the 
the, the returns on holding bond up until 2020, I'd say the majority of people in fiat world would tell you that bonds are working. Like I, I, you do your, you split your portfolio between bonds and stocks and the bonds serve their function of um, basically keeping up with inflation. And then you take risk with the rest of your portfolio. And you manage to beat CPI at least. Um, yeah, nominally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nominally, yeah, you can beat CPI and it looks, you know, somehow all the things that you want are becoming more expensive, but it was possible to convince yourself before 2020 that that was not an issue because you're beating CPI. But after 2020, this became much more difficult. And after 2022, um, over the last few months, as you were mentioning, England was a great example. And we were seeing enormous destruction in the bond market. So yields are rising and uh, the value of old bonds and old savings is declining enormously. So what are your thoughts on this? Why has this long-term trend um, played out the way that it has? And where do you yeah, see Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's pretty simple. That If you looked over the last uh, number of decades, the the uh, the yields, the 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 um, the interest rates have been they've been falling, right? So, and you know, if you own a bond and you own it at say four or five percent, and the interest rate is going lower, well, that means that people are paying more for that bond if you want to trade it in the market, right? So you're making money on that because the interest rate is lower. As interest rates go up, it's because there's less demand for that bond. Um, and so the interest rate has to go up in order to entice people, uh, incentivize them to buy that bond, right? So if you own bonds over the last number of decades, as structurally interest rates have been coming down and being been held low, um, you know, manipulated low, then below the uh, inflation rate, um, you know, that, that has, it's been a good trade. And of course, look, let's, let's, there's some confusion about bonds and, uh, and whether they're, they're a good investment long, long, long term. I don't think they're a great investment. And, and we can get into that, uh, because of the, the, the problem with the treasury and the problem with all fiat based, uh, debt. But the, the, just on the face of it, if you own a two year treasury, and it's and it's paying you somewhere around three and a half four percent that's probably okay as long as you hold it the whole two years but if you think you may need liquidity between now and then well the fed is is going to raise rates again one or two more times at, at a minimum and so interest rates are going to go higher which means that if you have to trade out of that two-year treasury in the next six or 12 months you'll probably lose money on that um, unless, because the market does anticipate, unless the market anticipates the Fed stopping and then interest rates go back down. But if you buy a treasury and you hold it until maturity, well, you know you're going to make that money because the, the United States government is going to pay you back what you lent them. That's on, that's in the near term. Right. Yeah, but I think the the problem here is, you know, for most retirees, is they don't just spend the coupon; they have to they have to eat into the drawdown exactly, on their savings, they have to eat into the principal, uh, and so yeah. you wind up having to sell some bonds, and you're not going to hold them for the thirty years that that you need to hold them in order to make that money back. So if, like the last few years, the last year and a half, two years, 
if you had a 30-year treasury, like you're saying, and you expected to maybe, you know, uh, just use that interest that you're that you're making on. You're retired. You're going to use that interest, and you might have to sell a little bit in order to to meet that margin of your of your uh, mandatory costs, right? Well, not only did your mandatory costs go through the roof the last couple of years, but the bond that you held it went lower. So n- because of the interest rates going much higher. So now that 30-year bond is down 25, 30%. You know, let's say let's call it 25%. And so now you're selling something that's worth the, and you're you're cashing out of it with a 25% loss. So structurally, the, the problem is as interest rates go higher, those long-term bonds are worth a lot less if you need liquidity. And then we can get into the, are the 30-year treasuries going to be around in 30 years? That's a good question. You know, I would say that we have, we have a structural problem with our system right now. And the treasury has entered what we call a debt spiral. And, uh, and I don't know how they get out of it other than printing their way forward. And eventually it breaks. So what does that mean? I mean, we can get we can get deep into this uh, safety, and if you want, but the 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 let's first start with what's the problem with the treasury? What's the problem with the bonds? And and what's the debt? Uh, what's that debt spiral? What why why do we call it that? Well, you know, right now we're running a one trillion dollar deficit, right? So that means that we're spending a trillion dollars more than we're taking in as a country. We're taking, according to the the uh, Congressional Budget Office, you can go on their website, you can download all this information, and it's optimistic. Remember, this is the this is the Congressional Budget Office. It's optimistic on what they think is going to happen with with debt and uh, with uh, with income in the United States. You know, if you look at it today, there's a one trillion dollar deficit that we're spending more every single year, right? So, and that's with a pretty good year in in 2020 when they printed all the when they printed all the money, asset prices went through the roof. Uh, you know, they had a huge windfall of taxes. So, if you look forward to 2023, 2024, there was about a 600 billion dollar uh, windfall tax on on capital gains and and asset inflation. Right. So, take that out. Right. You start there. Now, you, and then you look at the interest rates. Well, interest rates are much higher now. We have $31 trillion of debt, about a third of which comes off the next 12 to 18 months, about half of which comes out off in the next uh, three years, call it, right? And if that's the case, we have to refinance that debt. The treasury has to refinance the debt in order to pay people for the debt that's maturing, right? So remember, we're running a, a deficit here. So they don't, they're not making enough money to pay off old debt. They have to issue more debt in order to pay off that old debt. So now they're going to issue that debt at higher interest rates. So let's call it somewhere around three or four hundred billion dollars more interest each year as that debt rolls off. Right. So that's so you've got six hundred billion dollars of 
of windfall tax that that they're not going to get. You've got about three or four hundred billion dollars of extra uh, interest expense. Then you've got the cost of living, the 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 COLA adjustment on Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, and that is, that adds another hundred and fifty billion dollars just in twenty twenty three. We're not even talking about the the student debt forgiveness, and it, whether that is even in the calculation now is is unclear because it's it's sitting in the courts, right? But there's another three hundred billion dollars. But let's just put that aside. Let's just ignore that. Pretend that's not there. We just talked about six hundred billion, three or four hundred billion plus another one hundred fifty billion dollars of additional, you know, expenses or or less income that the government's going to take in. So that $1 trillion deficit now becomes $2 trillion. As we enter what is increasingly obviously going to be a recession, and if that recession is anything like 2000 or 2008, the tech bubble or the great financial crisis, both your, your tax receipts fell by about 8 to 12%. So let's call it 10%. And your, your, your social costs, your, your social security, your Medicare, your Medicaid, they, they, they rose by eight to 12%. You've got, because when you go into recession, you've got all these unemployment costs and, you know, and so you've got more social programs that come through. And so that's up 10%, right? So remember your tax receipts were $4.8 trillion. So 10% of that, there's another 500, you know, let's just call it $400 billion. Okay. And then your social security costs and all your, your social costs are up eight to 12%. Well, you're at $3.7 trillion of, of costs this year. So there's another three or $400 billion. So that's another $800 billion. So now you're at a $3 trillion deficit. And that's just going forward about 18 to 24 months. I mean, so what are they going to do? They're going to print more bonds. They're going to print money to buy those bonds. They're going to they're going to sell more bonds, and they're going to have to print more money to buy those bonds. Why? Because as you as you get to that, we're over one hundred thirty percent debt to GDP in this country now. Okay, so who's going to buy all these bonds? Who like you're crowding out balance sheets that they cannot buy these bonds. So the typical players that are buying these bonds, all these huge. Uh, whether they're pension funds, their endowments, or their hedge funds, or the commercial banks, the primary dealers, like who is going to buy these bonds? You're starting to crowd out the the balance sheets. So the Fed will have to print money to buy the bonds and put them on their on their own balance sheet. Now we're talking about, you know, we're we're getting into if you you keep doing this. Because the, the other option is to spend less money. You could do that. You could have the politicians agree to spend less money, pull down some of these social programs, pull down defense spending. You know, that's politically not very popular. So who's going to want to do that? Neither party wants to do that. Forget politics. Both parties suck. But, you know, where is it? Where are you going to, where are you going to get that money? Okay. You could do that. There, there's only there's only so many ways that you can do this, but it all passed lead to the the Fed printing more money. You know, um, so eventually, it's like to put it in simple terms, it's like a single parent who's trying to meet their expenses every single day, 
and their job is not paying enough. So they have to take out a credit card to meet the extra expenses they have, whether it's because uh, they just can't pay enough for the mortgage, the car payment, the food, the gas, you know, clothes for the kids to go to school in. It, it, they're just not meeting it. All the prices are going up. They're just not meeting those expenses. They take out a credit card. And then eventually, as they're paying on that credit card, the interest rates are high. So they've got to eventually, what do they have to do? They're going to max out that credit card. They're going to take out another credit card. And they're going to max out that credit card. Their, their credit score is going to go down. Their interest rates are going to go higher. And they're going to max out another credit card. And you get into what's called a debt spiral. And that's what we're in in the United States. And so in the, it, you can see in all the developed countries. Look at Japan right now. Japan, they, they own more than 50% of all government debt, the Bank of Japan. I mean, it's just, it, it's just ludicrous. Their, their, their debt to GDP is, is well over 200% now. I mean, they're, they're in a, they're in a spiral. I, you know, they've been able to, uh, they've been able to perpetuate this for a long time because they have a different structural, uh, income base than we do in the United States. They're net exporters. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're an older demographic. So, but the bottom line is you're seeing it with all, uh, all of these fiats. Look at Europe. You know, everybody's all of the Europe, most of not all, but almost every single other European country in the Eurozone is borrowing from Germany. That's a problem. They they just can't stop borrowing. So they're printing more money, borrowing for Germany, and it's just not working. And eventually that will break. But the bottom line is going back to your original question, why does it matter for the United States? And what does that well? The issue is eventually. We print so much money and we've bought so many of our own bonds that the world stops trusting the U.S. Treasury as, as, as the reserve asset, you know? So, and when that happens, when, when the, the Fed becomes the marginal buyer of, uh, becomes the, the major buyer of our debt and, and confidence in the U.S. Treasury is, is dissolved and it will happen. I'm not saying it'll happen in my lifetime, but it, it very well might. Yeah, I'm a little bit older, but you know, it, it very well might. And but when that happens, what are they going to turn to? Gold? I mean, I I think that some countries will turn to gold, but it's a manipulated asset as well. It's got so much paper on it, and that paper that paper market is is entirely manipulated. So again, so all paths lead to Bitcoin. No matter what happens, all paths lead to Bitcoin because it's the only pure asset out there that can't be manipulated. It can't be manipulated like fiat money. You know, they can't just print more. There's no, there's no target inflation rate with, with Bitcoin. You know, I mean, it's just nonsensical. The, the fiat, uh, you know, manipulation of money. So that's, that's why, that's why if you, uh, if you own bonds, it, you know, if you're one of the major players in this world that owns bonds, eventually you're going to wake up, whether you're a pension fund or an endowment or you're a hedge fund, eventually you're going to wake up and realize, wow, the better investment here is Bitcoin. And that's when everything changes. So, and eventually, you know, I believe that Bitcoin becomes the, the, the reserve asset of all these treasuries, all of the, all of the, the, um, the fiat driven countries.
I think that they, you know, I think that that's what happens. And I don't know if it happens in the next 20 years, 40 years, 50 years, but the U.S. dollar, the U.S. treasury in particular, is headed for collapse at some point. Structurally, it just can't keep up. Yeah, I like uh, Hyman Minsky. I, um, I, I presume you're familiar with him. He, he's got a three classifications of borrowing. He says there's three different types of borrowing. There's a hedge borrower, and a hedge borrower is somebody who can make debt payments that cover interest and principal from current cash flows from investments. So you've got an investment, it makes cash flow. That cash flow is enough for you to cover your running costs as well as make the repayments on the which debt. Is a, which is a AAA company. That's what our best companies in, yeah. the, in the S&P are doing, right? Okay. Yeah, it's basically when you're borrowing and you're pretty secure, you know, unless disaster strikes your business, you should be able to pay off uh, your debt and your your uh, your interest and your principal. But then there's the speculative borrower wherein the cash flow from investments can so uh, b- before we get to that. So the hedge borrower, I think we can clearly agree um, none of the major governments I think no government in the world is at, in in that phase. Uh, if you look at their financial balance sheets they do not look like cash flows can cover uh, interest in no and one of the, one of the and there's the speculative the borrowing. I mean, UK just jumped over 100% debt to GDP this year I mean it's a, yeah they're, they're all going down the path of insolvency but go ahead sorry yeah yeah and then there's the speculative borrower for whom the cash flow from investments can service the debt i.e they can cover the interest due but the borrower must regularly roll over or reborrow the principal. So you're in that phase where you're able to pay off your interest, but you're not you're not you're not paying down your principal. So the amount of debt that you have either stays constant or starts accumulating and growing over time. So you need to keep borrowing and refinancing. You have no prospect for repaying off. All governments are clearly at least in that phase. They that they're in that in in the best of days but then there's the third uh, borrower which is the what he calls the ponzi borrower from charles ponzi of ponzi scheme fame and here the borrower borrows based on the belief that the appreciation of the value of the asset will be sufficient to refinance the debt but they could not make sufficient payments on interest or principal with a cash flow from investments only the appreciating asset value can keep the Ponzi borrower afloat. I think we're kind of entering in that phase at this point where your current cash flow is not enough to maintain, uh, to, to pay down the principal. It's not even enough to main, pay down the increase in the in the interest. You're counting on the fact that and, and particularly when interest rates rise because of monetary policy, because of inflation, you're counting on the fact that somehow some miracle is going to come and that's going to allow the repayment to uh, allow the underlying asset, which is your economy, to grow massively. And then um, that's going to bail you out. Effectively, that's what a Ponzi is. You know, uh, If you get more and more people to sign up to your Ponzi, then uh, you have enough money to... Uh, pay off the returns that are for the current people for the for the current holders but of course this only delays the inevitable because all right well then people pay off and then what happens next that's right that's right so i mean what are they what 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 are their options they could they could raise taxes right so cut expenses not popular politically raise taxes well we both know 
having studied economics that 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 negatively impacts productivity so also it's not it's not politically uh you know favorable because the people that that donate to your programs to to your re-election sorry uh they're typically the wealthy people that you're raising the taxes on so that that's not popular and it hurts productivity so what's their other choice well their only other choice is to let inflation run hot and i've been saying this for a while i think that they're going to let inflation run four or five percent even if they pretend that it's not even if they say the cpi is down two or three percent they know that it's running hotter and what does that mean that means that gdp goes up nominally and they get to tax at a high you know they get ta to tax more dollars and so they pay off that debt so they're inflating away the debt because they're they're taxing at a different they're taxing at a debased dollar right so as your gdp goes higher nominally you're getting more dollars in tax receipts to pay down debt that you that you know you issued back when the dollar was worth more so but it only works for so long right at some point it breaks there's only it only works for so long yeah it, it's a it's a major problem and that's right it's an it's a ponzi that's it period yeah so i mean i tend to lean toward this perspective of yours and last week we had dylan on who leans in that uh view next week we're gonna have nick batia on who's uh gonna try and give us the kind of steel man case for why uh this is not a Ponzi and this is not sustainable. If you were to try to make this case, um, why the treasury market is going to be all right and things are going to be okay over the next 50 years, let's say, well, maybe 30 years, let's say, what in your mind would be the best thing? So you'd say, as you said earlier, uh, they're going to let inflation run a little bit. And, yeah, but there's a, yeah, and then well, what? a couple of things. So they let inflation run hot, right? for a while that can happen for a long time right so you can let inflation run you know four or five percent for a long time even if you're not admitting it you're you're manipulating the cpi basket so people don't see it so a sleight of hand and your tax revenues are going higher and it's not quite enough it's not running hot enough to hurt people enough that they realize just how devastating it is for their savings especially if they're not keeping up, you know, on, on their wages. But I think most wages will keep, keep close to that, that level uh, if, they, if, if they let it run hot like that. So that's one thing. That's one thing they can do. But of course, I, sh I should add here, um, uh, you know, as they let inflation rise, that also increases all of the inflation indexed uh, benefits that the yeah. government has to have. So that's yeah, but not remember, exactly re a solution because they're only only at the CPI that they're admitting to. They don't have to. They don't have. Yeah. They don't have to raise it by you know. So there's going to be an, a a delta there, probably three or four percent, right? So we all know that it. Like if you look at the CPI from from six months ago, it was laughable that the 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 number that they were putting out versus the number that people were experiencing right so we know that so i agree with you but remember that they're only that's why when people ask me are tips a good are they a good investment well first of all you can only buy 10,000 tips right 10,000 dollars worth of them which is a lot for 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 most people but you know hedge funds obviously can't do it they're only for individuals but um also that's the inflation rate that they're admitting to that's the real rate that they're admitting to. So, and it's a, it's an absolute fucking lie, right? 
So, okay. So there you start there. The second thing though is, honestly, you've seen it for so long. How many people are going to pivot their thinking and really believing that the treasury could fall out of favor? Look at everything that has happened this year. And we're, we're watching the bricks being assembled and, and put together right now. You know, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, like they're, we're watching it being assembled where they're, they're looking for a different base current. They're looking for a different, uh, reserve asset for the world. And they're, they're, they're putting together this and they've all sworn off treasuries. Like who's buying treasuries now? Well, Japan can't buy them. They're a net seller because of their own uh, problems in, in with their uh, government bonds and and their own treasury. China, the the other major buyer of of uh, treasuries, well, they've sworn off and they're not buying. They're selling them. Russia sold all theirs. So we're watching these massive players not buy treasuries, and yet. Still, the the vast majority of people say, oh, the treasury could never fall out of favor. I agree that, yeah, the, the treasury is that for governments who don't print their own money, if, for governments who don't have enough confidence in their currency to, to, to issue their own debt, let's put it that way, they have to issue debt in US dollars, right? So they're, that's what they're doing. And so... Um, we have a, a, we have hundreds of countries that have to do that. So again, it takes a very very long time for people to believe that something could collapse, and then it happens all at once. So I think that it could it, this could play out for many many years, and that is the argument against the debt spiral. That is the argument against oh you know the treasury is going to collapse in the next ten years. I don't think it will. Um, you know, I have a partner that that we talk, Larry Lepard. Um, we, you know, he's an investment partner, and and we we go back and forth on this. You know, he thinks we have this is our last cycle. I think it could play out for a couple more cycles. And the reason I think that is because, you know, look at how many think about how many people are just followers in this world. Like go out and actually talk to people who are not in our bubble. Who not are not seeing the manipulation of money? I can just around the the Thanksgiving table, you know, surrounded by very smart people, but they're they're not focused on this like we are. We are a hyper laser focused on this, but to the 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 typical person out there who just has a job and is just trying to keep up, they're not thinking about this. And so you know, it's, it's going to take a long time. I, you know, that's that's the I think that's the argument. But I don't have an argument, safe. I don't have an argument for this to for this to perpetuate forever. I just don't have it, you know. Yeah, and I think you know, even the most died in the wall Keynesian um, and Keynes himself, you know, I mean, the, the the when you cornered him about the absurdity of his economic system, his final answer is his final get out of jail card is well, in the long run, we're all dead. And thankfully, you know, for us, he is dead. But um, unfortunately for us, 
we have to live in the world that comes after he dies. And, you know, he's a very high time preference person who never thought much about the future, as I discuss extensively in uh, the Bitcoin standard. And so you can see why this kind of uh, mentality and, and you see it, if you, the more you study his life, the more you see it, you know, this was um, in World War One. He was instrumental in, uh, which I discussed in the fiat standard, you know, in, in World War One, the way that they financed the, uh, the, the war was that they tried to sell bonds and then the British people had the good judgment to not buy those bonds because why should we get into this stupid European war that doesn't benefit us? And the Bank of England went and bought the bonds uh, under the name of a couple of the employees of the Bank of England. And um, the, that was the beginning of the fiat standard. You know, the idea is, well, just have the central bank buy the bonds and then we'll just keep kicking the can down the road and things will, you know, one day they'll sort themselves out. It was always this kind of, we will figure out a solution today and then we'll, um, we'll cross tomorrow's bridge when we get to it. And, you know, you could argue, well, it's been 100 years and they've been kicking the can for 100 years and it's been working. So why can't they do it for another 100 years? But of course, uh, I think here the question then becomes, well, at what cost? And then also like, yeah, you, you, you keep the pretenses of we're paying off the bonds and we're still solvent. But in reality, you know, you look at the implications for Britain um, going from a world superpower to essentially a dysfunctional uh, uh, hanger, hanger on. <laughs> American yeah. colony at yeah. this point. Yeah. I mean, it's sad. It is. And it's then sad. you, it is. And then you look at the you know the, the deeper implications for society and for economic productivity. Britain had the industrial revolution in the nineteenth century, and today they're essentially deindustrializing. I don't think you can separate all of those things. And of course, the same people who tell you that um, this kind of high time preference, kicking the can down the road is the right way to go around. They're also the same people who will have these very elaborate um, <laughs> complaints about the evils of capitalism. And somehow the evils of capitalism just pertain to people buying and selling things freely on the market. That's that's where all the evil comes from. It has nothing to do with all of the destruction of currency and all the debt and all the inflation that takes place. That somehow is justified and needed, and we'll cross that bridge when we get to it, and let's not worry about the long-term implications. And then when you look at the long-term implications and all the actual consequences of this, then these just get rationalized away as, oh, well, that just means that capitalism is bad, and we can fix that by printing more money and having the government have more power. But think about it. So there's the average person. The average person sees the capitalist, the bankers, you know, uh, the, the investors, uh, the, the, the company owners, they see them getting rich around them and they just get, they get, they get increasingly angry at that because they're not keeping up. Right. So it's an easy target for them to say, well, it must be capitalism instead of understanding that, well, no, they're just closer to the spigot. They're the ones who are closest to the manipulated spigot. And that's why they are benefiting greatly. That's why, I mean, I know people who just, I mean, they're born into money. They, it's super easy for them just to get some money and go invest it and, uh, and make more money and think that they're brilliant. They're not brilliant. They're just in, extraordinarily close to the, the spigot. You know, they were, they benefited insanely from this system. That's how they did it. 
And of course, they can borrow against it. That's Always. the important thing. If you have money in the fiat system, you borrow against it. You know, this was this was what uh, Sailor really um, came and gave me the glue that holds all of the fiat standard together. And that what allowed me to finish writing the fiat standard was just understanding this idea that, yeah, that's how it works. It's just constantly benefiting people who get into debt. And so if you have money, you can borrow against it. And then you're constantly benefiting from the inflation rather than getting hurt from the inflation. So it's a way of rigging the game to benefit the people who already have money exactly so it's the, the capitalists become the easy target because it's just it's the easy way out for people to think well that's the problem it's not the problem the problem is the money the problem is the manipulation of it period period stop manipulate manipulating the money and and you'll and you'll you'll stop the the separation of wealth in this country that's the problem yeah so I guess I think if I were to make the case, you know, the best case scenario is that this manages, this can be managed through financial repression, essentially, wherein you have funds staying poor, basically. You know, your bonds continue to get paid off. Uh, you still, the government, there's no formal default, but your bonds buy you less and less of the things that you actually want. And you have to constantly replace the things that you want with things that you are told are better. And this is essentially the central thesis of the fiat standard, that the way that the fiat standard works is that, you know, this was what happened in the 70s, that we suddenly developed all these insane pseudosciences that started telling us, oh, the way to fix your health and to fix the planet and to fix the weather and to not boil the oceans is for you to eat industrially processed crops and stop eating the meat that all your ancestors have eaten. And um, the way to fix the weather is also for you to stop using modern fuels that have built our modern world and go back to what your ancestors used as technology, you know, windmills and uh, sunshine, and just, you know, rely on that. And I think we're seeing more and more of this. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that these things ramp up when inflation ramps up, because it's the only way that you can try and hide that inflation. So you're not eating uh, soys and bugs because uh, you're poor. You're eating soy and bugs because you're so enlightened and rich uh, that you can afford to tailor your diet to save the planet. And you're not living off wind and sunshine like a peasant in the 12th century because you can't afford modern fuels that your ancestors have afforded for the last 100 years or so. No, you're doing it because you're fixing the weather. And so you should feel very proud of yourself. Right. And you don't own a house and you don't own a car and you don't own it because you're, you're helping. It, it's, it's, a, it, it's a sharing program that you're, you're reducing your exactly. carbon footprint. Exactly. You know, to get, and then we get to the CBDC and then the, then the game is over. The game is absolutely over. If, you know, if there's one thing that I want people to understand, it's wake up. CBDCs are not just digital dollars. Wake up. They are, they are the ultimate evil and they will be manipulated and you will, you will lose every single dollar that you make, every single ounce of currency that you make, even if it's, you know, whatever it becomes will be under the control of the king. And that king is your government. So beware. People better wake up. They better wake up really, really fast, really fucking fast, because it's going it, to, they can do anything they want with those and talk about, you know, well, you know, you, you, you have, uh, you've eaten two steaks this, this month. 
And so your carbon footprint's too high. Now you're gonna you can eat the uh, you know the cricket burgers, um, or you know we, you can eat Beyond Beef, but the, you cannot have another steak. So your money cannot buy that. You know you you traveled twice in the past six months, and you were on an airplane, so your carbon footprint's too high. So you can't travel anymore. Sorry if you want to go see your kid who's in a different city can't do that because you know you you've already you've already spent your carbon credits people are people are sleepwalking into this safety they're they're sleepwalking into it and they don't understand i can't tell you how many arguments i hear that we already have cbdc's they're just digital dollars so people are they're 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 missing the boat on this one and it's happening fast yeah and i think the key thing is that there's just really no way of separating the push toward all of those things from the financial repression, exactly. from the destruction of bonds, from the destruction of the dollar, from the destruction of fiat currencies, this is this is this is the way that inflation takes shape. This is the idea that I'm trying to communicate in the ninth, in the fiat standard. This is how it worked in the 70s. This is how it's working right now. If everybody wants to live um, in in the standards of that they think they're entitled in terms of how much money they spend, you know, if you want to live the quality of life that you expected when you started in this current job with the current income that you have, that's going to mean way too many people buying way too many things, raising the prices, exposing the inflation. But you can keep inflation down if you stop people from eating things that are price sensitive. And this is, again, sailor. You know his his other very important contribution to the fiat standard was to, the idea of thinking of inflation as a vector. It's not a single number. The notion that you can summarize all of inflation as a number is ridiculous. Inflation is more like a vector where it's uh, and and it changes from one good to the other. So the goods that are actually desirable, you know, real estate in areas that are nice, food that takes time to grow because it's natural, healthy food of cows actually out there grazing in the fields and getting sunshine and getting uh, uh, proper f- feed. That's going to be expensive because there's no way to rush it. Whereas industrial things can be made cheaper. Um, they continue to increase the productivity of industrial processes so they could continue to get cheaper and cheaper. So therefore, industrial food is not something that's very price sensitive. You know, the price of Coca-Cola doesn't go up as much as inflation. The price of Doritos and Pringles, these things are relatively easy to make. Uh, you can just ramp up the production and meet increasing demand and then prices don't go up as much. Yeah, they're mass produced. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So digital goods, of course, are the best in this. Digital goods are deflationary or price deflationary in that the price continuously declines. You know, the price of a megabyte of storage continues to go down no matter what happens with monetary policy. We just keep getting better at making it and the factories become more productive and the capital that has been invested is paid off so the company can now charge less and less for the output of the factories that it is. Which is another which is another mind game because people see, well, I've got this new iPhone and it's, you know, it's not as expensive as I thought it was going to be, you know, and it does so much more than yet they can't afford what they could in food just last month. Exactly. Exactly. So as long as you focus people's consumption toward the digital and the industrial, you can hide inflation significantly. 
And so the, where the inflation really shows up is in food and in energy. That's where thermodynamics and nutrition can't be cheated. You know, you need your nutrients and nutrients need to come from living things. They need to come from the natural processes of life. Although, of course, you know, these criminals on um, modern nutrition departments are trying to feed you synthetic garbage, um, which, you know, defeats the entire point of food. Like the whole idea of food is that it comes from living creatures and they're trying to feed you synthetic garbage because that would be... That would be the ultimate anti-inflation policy. Right. If they manage to just feed you industrial waste, then you're done. Uh, there's no inflation ever. But you can't cheat nutrition and you can't ne- cheat um, energy. Yeah, as, as Europe is finding out in a very difficult way in the last year. And it's, yeah, yeah you, can't, you, you can't print energy. Yeah, that's 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 what it comes down to. So I I mean, I don't know. I don't know how it plays out. Obviously, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think uh, we're going to see more and more of this. More and more of your life is going to need to go to more and more of your consumption, and the BLS basket is going to head toward digital and industrial mass-produced goods, and more and more of our education system and media and all of this uh, gaslighting industrial complex is going to continue to uh, insist that you must eat the bugs, um, stay home, don't drive, right. live in a small house, minimize your carbon footprint. You are the carbon that they want to produce, reduce. That's, right. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, our challenge is to stop people from sleepwalking right into that path. That's the challenge. So we need to just find ways to educate people so they understand everything that's going on around them and don't just accept what they're being told to do. And it's hard. Most people are sheep. Reality. That's a hard reality. But, you know, it's, uh, it's worth it. It's worth all the energy putting it out there. You know, it's worth it. And like, uh, and you said something that's really important is, um, you know, Keynesy just thought, well, we're all going to be dead. It doesn't matter. Yeah, well, my kids are going to be alive. And I want a better, I want a better life for them. I don't want them to be dealing with this, with this only getting worse. You know, I want a, I want a better option for them. And that's why we're doing this. And that's why we're into Bitcoin. That's, right. that's really what it that's comes right. down to. It's it's fascinating just how common these themes are amongst people who get Bitcoin and how rare you find them everywhere else i mean it's very very rare um daniel was telling us about this uh, trend among uh, boomer parents so they, they call it a ski vacation and ski isn't specifically about going skiing it's spend kids inheritance and now this is the um, it's all the rage among retired boomers who are just decided hey you know why give people an inheritance why not just spend it all on um, conspicuous consumption today? And I think it's a very common uh, way of uh, thinking in the fiat generation. You know, this particular fiat generation, I mean, they saddled their children with massive amounts of debt and they've spent down the savings of centuries of their ancestors. You know, you look at a place like England, um, it, it, in the 19th century, they had such high savings rates and the savings rate had been declining constantly in the 20th century and now they're basically non-existent. And now the savings exist in the forms of bonds that are being destroyed. And moving forward, this is just uh, going to be less and less that's going to be handed over. It's, 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 it's truly the reversal of the process of civilization and that's, that, that's the subtitle of my book. You know, the fiat standards, the, 
debt slavery alternative to civilization. Everybody becomes a debt slave. We get rid of the civilization because what civilization is, what you just said, you want your kids to have a better life. You don't want your kids to suffer from these problems. That's what civilization is. The only reason civilization exists is because people have kids and then they focus on this objective. I want to give my child a life that's better than mine. If you live in a society where everybody thinks like this, children end up predominantly living lives better than their parents, then you have civilization. That's it. That's kind of the punchline of my next book, Principles of Economics. And fiat is truly destroying that because it's taken away from us the ability to give our children a better life. And it's raising our time preference so much that we see so many people don't even have that desire or intention. Like, why should I give my children a better life? Anyway, you know, why shouldn't I just spend the money and let them fend for themselves? And that's a disease that uh, needs to be rooted out right there. Yeah. It's a mental disease. In, in one of your other newsletters, you discussed the Plaza Accord. And this is something that we've also discussed here a couple of times before in the pot with uh, Caitlin. What are your thoughts on this? So one other thing that we've been noticing over the last year, it's reversed over the last month or so, uh, is the destruction in the value of fiat currencies other than the US dollar compared to the US dollar. Um, so we're seeing all of these foreign currencies lose value against the dollar. The dollar has been on a tear internationally. And so when we think about the bonds of a place like Britain declining in value, we're not just, they're not just declining in value um, in nominal terms against the British pound. The British pound itself is declining in value against the US dollar, which itself is declining in value against uh, normal goods and services. So like it's, if you're a British retiree, you're getting robbed on three layers. Um, and you suggest that this might be uh, the cause for a new Plaza Accord. What are your thoughts on this? What, what do you think of this? Yeah, I think there, there, there are people who are calling for a new Plaza Accord. So the Plaza Accord was, uh, it, was a, it was an agreement in, in, uh, back in 1985 between, uh, it, it was the UK, West Germany, uh, France, Japan, and the US. And what had happened was uh, the, the US dollar had appreciated so much against all these other currencies that, um, you know, our interest rates were, were rising and, and the Fed was battling inflation, right? Um, to, to, it, the, the inflation was getting almost out of control, right? So they were attracting investment with, with uh, higher interest rates. And, you know, um, you know this, but for your listeners, basically there's, there's something um, that's called interest rate parity. And what happens is if your interest rates are higher here than they are in another country, well, you'll attract money into this, into, into these interest rate vehicles, right? So people were buying our bonds for the higher yield. Um, and it's just, that's what interest rate parity is. And so your dollar was going up against other currencies. Why? Because they were selling those bonds that they owned in, in this currency. And then they were getting that currency, selling it and buying US dollars in order to buy our bonds. And that's just, that's what happens. So the dollar was getting stronger. And so it was getting so strong that uh, it was actually hurting our exporters, you know, um, our, our, you know, our, our Caterpillars and, and GM and Fords of, of, of the nation, you know, the automakers and, and equipment manufacturers. And so they got together and they argued um, that we should do something about the uh, about the U.S. dollar increasing so much, and so they lobbied pretty pretty heavily 
um, to uh, to protect um, themselves against foreign com- uh, competitors, saying that you know people can't afford our equipment, our cars because they they can't afford the dollars because their their currencies is getting decimated. So they argued for for the these countries to get together and to wage an attack on the U.S. dollar. So they sold the dollar down pretty heavily, and uh, and it worked. You know, it worked. The dollar went down. I want, I want to say it was like 40% or something in just a few years. And so um, and so people are saying, well, the same thing needs to happen now. The U.S. dollar needs to have, uh, we need to have another Plaza Accord, a Plaza Accord 2.0. And the reason they called it that, by the way, is because when they struck the agreement, it was in the Plaza Hotel in New York. People asked me, they were like, well, why is it called the Plaza so that's why I doubt they'd even meet in the Plaza Accord and the Plaza now if they had if they tried to do an accord. But you know, uh, first of all, the dollar is coming down, and the reason is uh, it, it it went up to um, it went pretty strong. Uh, it got over 115 the DXY <clears throat> in that basket. But uh, if you look at it, that's nowhere near where it was back in the 80s. Number one, number two, you know, um, we, there are different countries that are that are um you know in the in that would be in the plaza now so there is no west germany anymore right so germany is part of the euro right so uh and same thing with france so um so you would our major trade partners now are the eu the uk japan and china right but there's no incentive for china to come to the table now they have their own issues. And the last thing they want is for, you know, a, a weaker dollar uh, against their currency. You know, I mean, they want the strong dollar because it's it's better for them. Um, that's structurally as an exporter to the United States, it's better for them. So um, I just don't see that happening. Truly, number one, I don't, I don't, I don't think that we're we're in the spot where that they would never even come to the table. So it doesn't make any sense. Without China, what does it matter um, if you're trying to make the dollar weaker against other currencies? So, um, but it's happening. You know, you've seen over the last number of weeks, it's happening a little bit naturally. The dollar is back under 110. I think it's 105 or 106 now on the DXY. And for anybody who's wondering, in the informationist, I wrote about the DXY and how it's structured. And if you want more information, it's on there. It's free, the, the informationist. You can go check it out there. But um, but the bottom line is, uh, no, I, I don't see another one happening. And I think a lot of these countries are just kind of playing chicken with the United States. I mean, Japan's a great example. Japan has, they announced that they are keeping their interest rates low because they want higher inflation. Uh, they need higher inflation for their economy. So clearly they've got a 250% debt to GDP. So, um, but when they did that and they've held their 10 year treasury to a 0.25% return uh, interest rate, they did that by manipulating the market, by getting in there in the Bank of Japan, buying every single bond in order to keep that interest rate artificially low. Well, when they're doing that, the, while they're doing that, the Fed has been raising rates and our 10-year got to 4%. So obviously, anybody who owned Japanese 10 years were selling those, getting yen, selling yen, buying US dollar, and buying the the 10-year treasury. Why? Because they could make a better return here, 
right? And so that was the play. And uh, and so put tremendous pressure on the yen to the point where the Japanese government that owned at one point one one point two trillion dollars of treasuries, those were down in uh, you know mark to market terms, but they had to they had to not replace them, so they were letting them roll off their balance sheet. Number one, they couldn't rebuy uh, U.S. treasuries, and now they became a net seller. So they're selling U.S. treasuries in order to support their currency. But getting back to the, the, that point is that they're playing a game of chicken. They're saying that they can sustain this. They can, they can weather this and wait it out for the, for the U.S. to start you know, entering into a recession and for the Fed to stop raising rates and eventually pivot off of the higher interest rates. And that'll bring down the strength of the dollar. And you're seeing it in the last number of weeks that, you know, we've got a, a number of, of dovish comments out of uh, Fed governors that they're saying, you know, the, the question is how, how fast can they go? How high can they go? And so you're seeing, you know, and, and, and our housing market coming down and questions on, on, the, um, on the employment market. So PMI, you know, you're seeing some of these conflicting measures of, of, of our economy. You know, the, the major investors are, are backing off of, of buying uh, or backing off of those, uh, those treasuries and they're starting to buy them because they think that those, the interest rates are not gonna go quite as high as people thought last year. And so as the interest rates of our, of our, our benchmark tenure, as that comes down, then the U.S. dollar gets weaker. And as it comes down in, in you know, uh, as compared to other interest rates, you know, European interest rates, the U.K., Japan, then, then the dollar will get weaker. And that's what the, these the countries are playing, the, the game of chicken there. So that's kind of where we're at. Although, if you look at the yield curve, it is heavily signaling a recession because it's massively Absolutely. inverted. And it's, um, I mean, this is this is the sort of thing that uh, people like to argue about. And um, a lot of fiat people insist that it's just a coincidence that uh, every single time we've had an inverted yield curve, we've had a recession after it. From the Austrian perspective, it's not so much that, a yield, that an inverted yield curve predicts a recession. It's more the fact that an inverted yield curve is the recession. It's the beginning of the recession. When, um, Because if I were to summarize this very briefly, from the Austrian perspective, what, what sows the seeds of the recession is the inflationary monetary policy, the monetary expansion, which um, creates... Uh, relaxed lending standards so people borrow too much and unsustainable businesses will be still able to be getting uh, credit and that makes them borrow too much and then when interest rates rise you get a liquidity crunch where these people are unable to make their short-term uh, funding needs and so that creates a and not only that but 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 companies are less profitable you know uh that yeah you know banks are less profitable because they they lend out at rates that are that are lower than the rates that they're being paid uh, on, so that's it structurally doesn't work, right? So, yeah, yeah, and so that creates uh, a flight away from the long term uh, bonds and a flight to the short term bonds because when you're unable to make payroll next month, you 
you don't really have much use for a 30-year and 20-year treasury. And so um, you're more likely to want to hold things that are shorter. And so that then makes the yield uh, inverted, makes the yield curve inverted because the yield on the um, low low maturity, uh, low duration bonds rises above the one for the short duration bonds. And that that's basically the signal that the that that we are in 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 a recession so it looks like we're getting into a recession and if this happens usually um again there's there's the school of thought that says well recession everybody's going to go away from the currency but i think uh, the last few have shown that um, there's more demand for the dollar so when there is a recession people move away from risk assets and they want to hold more cash you know they need to they need to take less risk with their holdings. So they liquidate the things that are the most risky. You know, they liquidate the most uh, speculative things like, say, mortgage-backed securities previously or uh, cryptocurrencies um, currently and move toward things that are more uh, reliable, which in most cases is going to have to be the thing in which your paycheck is denominated and thing in which your rent is denominated. So that leads to a rise in the dollar. Yeah, and there's so many countries, like we talked about before, who need dollars because they have dollar-denominated debt. So they have to have dollars. But it balances. There's a balancing that occurs there with the interest rates between countries too. And so as our interest rates come lower and they come back into line with uh, with the interest rates around the world, then it, it also balances it out. So that's right. Yeah, and so you, you you think that there's not going to be much dollar strength moving forward, or some? Well, I mean, I, I think that uh, no, I do think that there's going to be more dollar strength, as, especially as we, you know, as as some of these other fiat based you know currencies countries as they falter, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in Europe. Uh, I talked about this before, you know, the the the, the deficit that Europe is running on Germany. Or, you know, it's incredible. And they, the rest of the Eurozone owes Germany over a trillion dollars and it's only growing. And that's because of manipulation because the bank of England, I'm sorry, the, uh, the European central bank, the ECB, they're buying treasuries of the weaker countries in order to manipulate that yield curve to, uh, to prevent exactly what you're talking about. And so to do that, they're having to borrow from Germany and it's causing a structural issue there. And the issue there is that it's something called target two where they have an overnight settlement uh, system. And so between countries. So if you're, if a country is borrowing money in order to uh, settle out some, some sort of um, transaction, then it gets put on this, this, you know, just gets put on a record. And it's the target too, it keeps track of that. So all money kind of flows through the ECB and out the other side, but the ECB just keeps a record. And so they keep borrowing from Germany and letting Italy and Spain and Portugal, Italy's the worst offender now. And so they're they're running, they, they owe like $600 billion to the other countries, mostly to Germany. And so, but there's no mechanism for that to be paid back. So getting back to your point, I do think the dollar is going to be stronger. It's going to continue to get stronger, but I don't see a mechanism for a plaza, a plaza accord. I don't see the, the, the necessary trade partners coming to the United States to 
to fix it. I mean, Japan's already doing it on their own because they have to, but if you don't have China in, in China in that uh, equation, it just won't work. It doesn't matter. So, but I do see, we'll go back to what's called the dollar milkshake, and that's Brent Johnson's theory, you know, from Santiago Capital. Uh, and that's the the U.S. dollar because there's so much debt. There's so many transactions that are denominating U.S. dollars around the world that it, it's like a milkshake. And so the theory goes, and he, he uh, I think he explained it um, in that it's kind of like it goes back to the old oil uh, drilling days where if you saw there was a great property over here, you would buy the property next door and then drill a really long hole across into that next property and suck some of that oil into your own property, right? And so it's it, 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 that's your straw. And so what he likens it to is the US dollar um, having the you and I are sitting in a diner, you're all the way across the diner and you're drinking your milkshake and that's your currency. And I'm the US dollar and I'm sitting over here, but I've got a really long straw and I can drop it into your milkshake and pull that into my own. Well, in this in this instance, your milkshake is the foreign currency. The straw is all the U.S. dollar denominated liabilities, the the debt, the euro dollars, you know, um, those bonds that we talked about that that other countries are issuing in U.S. dollars. And so the U.S. dollar has the strength to just suck that liquidity out of all the other currencies into its own, and that's and that is definitely happening. And that will continue to happen. And the first, the first countries to go will be the uh, undeveloped emerging markets that don't have their debt denominated in their own currency. And then eventually, I think country, I think the countries in the eurozone will will falter. Germany will eventually just get up and walk away. They, they, there's if there's no mechanism to pay them back, they're they're just going to get sick of everybody else living off of them and and creating. Uh, uh, creating an economic system that that is stacked against them, so they're they're working in order to benefit the rest of the eurozone rather than themselves. And eventually, I think that 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 changes, and they walk away. And so, what happens when the eurozone breaks apart? Well, I think a lot of that money just dumps into the dollar while there's so much uncertainty, and that that will occur. To me, I think that's going to occur in the next decade. I don't know anything, but that's that's what I see. And so, yeah, I do think the dollar gets stronger. I agree with you 100%. But I don't see an, uh, any impetus for for there to be a Plaza Accord 2.0. I don't see that occurring. Yeah, I mean, I think politically the world is a little bit different. Um, the world is a lot less uh, unipolar than then. I mean, at the, well, there was the Soviet Union back then, but... Um, the non-Soviet world is a lot less uh, unipolar. Having said that, I think if I were to make the counter argument, I'd say the world was surprisingly unipolar when COVID came about and everybody got together in line and started listening to what the World Health Organization was saying. In my mind, I don't think it's entirely inconceivable that we could get something similar with a, you know, all of this great reset stuff, um, a monetary... I think a central bank digital reserve currency, something issued by the IMF um, and global major central banks as a global reserve asset that is then uh, held by central banks who then issue their own currency backed by it 
and it's a way to bring in CBDCs, perhaps something. Yeah, like but that but think about how much power the United States has, and I don't I don't disagree. I think that they. Yeah, I'm yeah. not necessarily saying that's going to be a, a U.S. I think they thing. want it. Yeah, a hundred percent. They the IMF, you know, they, I think they want it, but uh, the WEF, and that's the easiest way to get us all to eat bugs. I mean, truly, to yeah. not own anything, the CBDC. But I think that I think the U.S. is going to fight against that because it, it it structurally impacts us so greatly that you know it dismantles our 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 you know our our, our power our leverage over the rest of the world. So, but I don't doubt that they want it. They definitely want it. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd have been a lot more skeptical about their chances of getting it before COVID, after COVID, and watching how. I think it's the, the scary thing is like you you ask all of the world's intellectuals and all of the world's thought leaders and all of the world's opinion makers and politicians if you ask them in January 2020 and you told them hey there's a bunch of people getting sick in China assume this turns out to be a massive um, pandemic what do you think should be done and everybody from the health experts to the politicians to the intellectuals to the economists Everybody who was a hysterical bitch in April 2020 would not have told you that they would want to do what was happening in 2020. But once people are gripped by fear, then they just become completely pliable. And uh, the role of a public intellectual in fiat world is simply to take down uh, instructions from authority and rationalize them to their audience. So your role as an intellectual, if you look at you know, all of those people who play intellectuals on TV, like um, Richard Dawkins, uh, Sam Harris, Nassim Taleb, uh, you know, uh, uh, Nate Silver, all of these uh, economists and statisticians, like Emily Oster, who got uh, a lot of heat uh, the last few weeks for talking about getting uh, into pandemic amnesty. If you look at what all of those people do, None of them in January would have told you that they should that they would support uh, mandatory masking, uh, lockdowns, uh, mandatory medical treatments, which I'm not going to say because uh, of censorship. They wouldn't have said this is what you should do. But once this was the current thing, once they were scared, then they just it's 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 pavlovian like what you do is you go on tv and you explain to people this is what needs to happen and you use your ideas and your audience you know whatever stupid garbage you usually publish and you usually write about you just use your tools and tricks and ideas to then portray the same thing that cnn is saying so you know whether it's sam harris what's so telling about what you're saying and what it really upset me early in the pandemic is seeing some of these experts get up in front of cameras and having the whole world watch them and they were excited they were excited they were happy they were smiling telling you all these terrible things that were happening and you need to do why were they so excited because they were getting all the attention and so and it was sickening i couldn't i, I was like why are you smiling this is not funny this is not enjoyable. Yeah, you could you could see so many of them all over the world like they just got such a kick yeah, out of it. a rush and yeah. this is Exactly, and then because you know these are the the nerds in the class finally get to have some respect because now this is just the current thing. So I think the scary thing here is if inflation gets bad and economic problems become bad, and I think you know we had we had a, we had a dry run in two thousand eight. If you think about two thousand eight, uh, after having gone through twenty twenty, 
2008 looks a lot clearer about what happened. Like, realistically, yes, things were bad on Wall Street and uh, the LIBOR market froze up and this and that and all of those bad things happened. But let's face it, like, realistically, if the central bank and the treasury all over the world decided, you know what, you guys are all on your own, <laughs> sort it out, what would have happened? I mean, yeah, it would have sucked to be a billionaire uh, who's got billions of dollars in Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. You would have probably gotten, say, a 90% haircut. So you'd have gone from being a net worth of $10 billion to having a net worth of a billion dollars. I mean, it's catastrophic, but you're still a billionaire or, you know, a millionaire. You're, you're not going to go hungry. Like if the U.S. government just said FDIC insurance for everybody, even in the, you know, let's be generous here and say even in the uh, shadow banking system, your first $250,000 are, are on us and everything else let the chips fall wherever they may. Like if that had happened, you know, the, the, the horror that was being portrayed, the scariness that was being manufactured by TV of this idea that unless we bail out those billionaires, then tomorrow- The whole financial system collapses, yeah. No. Not just the financial system, yeah, the supply everything. chains. You know, there's not going to be bread in the supermarkets. There's not going to be meat at the butchers. So we need to make sure that all of these financial institutions of highly leveraged billionaires and hedge funds continue to make their enormous bonuses this year or else you won't get to eat. I mean, now, after coronavirus and all of the hysteria that we saw there, this is just clearly just, uh, it, 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 it becomes clear what was going on. Like you just had the propaganda machine commandeered to try and get people to accept something that they would never have accepted unless they were freaked out. And that's basically the, the recipe, scare people. And then if they're scared, they will accept things that they would have never accepted. It's true. And it's so easy because you get on those the mainstream media uh, news cycle and they make money from fear, period. And there's just, there's no way exactly. around it. So it's just, it, they're, it's just so easy to use them as puppets to just get across whatever they want to get across. And you're right. We should have had, we should have let those banks collapse. We should have let some banks collapse, you know? I mean, I, it just, it's sickening to think of all the money that some of the people, yeah. It, it would have been enormously beneficial for everybody else in society. I mean, yes, yes a, a lot of billionaires would have been hurt, but, you know, think about all of the uh, real estate that's being used up in all of these um, financial institutions that don't do anything except generate money by printing money out of thin air, by lending it out. All of these people would have been replaced by actual productive businesses. You know, you'd have had brick and mortar buildings that they take up and computers that they use up and smart engineers that they use up we would have had a lot of intelligent talent move from this you know yield chasing uh hamster wheel to making useful things over the last 10 12 years it would have been a lot better for the world it would have meant a lot of deflation so real estate prices would have crashed which would have been enormously beneficial for the generation that came of age over the last 10 15 years who can't buy houses you know when you think about why is it that people can't buy houses because they well the the, the the financial industry got bailed out. And so all of these millionaires and billionaires now have tens and dozens of houses that they can rent out. Yeah. To. And not, and yeah, exactly. And not even that it, it's, it's the individuals, the billionaires, but it's also the Black Rocks and the Berkshire Hathaways and the Allianz, you know, they're in every single city. Yeah. They're buying every fucking house that is open. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. This was all the, the 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 seeds for that were sown in 2008. You know, 2008 was the chance to yes. nip that in the bud. Yes, and instead it was 
put on steroids. It made it worse. It's it's infuriating. Exactly. It's absolutely infuriating. And yeah. all of that, all of that comes back to you know the 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 fear that the, when you just turn on CNN and there's all these ugly graphics that are telling you you know people are dying from the virus or people are uh, livelihoods are being ruined or the banks are going to collapse or the library rate is rising like none of those people who supported those measures in late 2008 would have told you this is what needs to be done and i remember this was like my awakening moment my and i was just getting into austrian economics and this is when all the stuff it started to make sense i'd see how those economists you know Today, they'd be telling you, all right, so this is what's going on, and now the central bank did this because it's going to fix it, and now things are going to be better. And then the next day, something completely unexpected happens, and then they come at you and say, oh, yeah, well, now they need to do this because that's what's uh, better, and now things are going to be fixed. And like at every point in time, they were getting their call about what's going to happen wrong, and at every point in time, they were coming up with a justification for things that need to happen that they would not have wanted earlier. So watching how all of these economists in unison start singing from the same hymn sheet, which none of them would have suggested the day before, is really, I think, the worrying thing to go bring us back to the CBDC discussion. Like, it seems completely outlandish that they would do something like this right now, that central banks could introduce something like this right now. It's not going to be outlandish if inflation is high and bonds are collapsing and CNN is going on and then all of the current thing energy is focused on the financial collapse, you know? Then you you can get all of this stuff passed in 15 minutes. <laughs> look at how, if you just Google uh, transitory inflation, look at how many people fell in line to say, oh yeah, it's just transitory. It's supply chain issues. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it, yeah, it, it's incredible. So um, they're mind games. Um, and it's really, in, if you, if you talk to Jeff Booth, you know, it all goes back to just, just look at, look at the system and what they're trying to protect and the system and nobody can think outside the box of the system. It's very difficult to see a future that doesn't involve the base case of where you've lived all your life. And so you, it, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult to get people out of that mindset. And so when you have a few, you know, thousand people who are saying the same thing over and over and over again, who are supposedly the experts, who are supposedly the leaders, the thought leaders, but none of them are critically thinking. Well, that's where that's where you get you you get led right down the path to destruction, and so yeah, we need more critical thinkers. Say, if we need more people who will actually think for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an individual thing. I think uh, the the, the uh, it, it's not so much that we as a collective need it. I think every single person needs to do it for themselves because. I think if if it's not obvious to you at this point that when you go along with the herd, you're not going along for what's for you. You will get made fun of. You will get ridiculed. People will say say you're crazy. People will say that you're you're you know you're weird. You're you know you're 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 just coming up with wild conspiracy theories. You know it's not a conspiracy theory that they want us to to have zero control. They want to have control over everything that we do with CBDCs. It's not conspiracy. It's obvious. It's obvious once you once you actually yeah. critically think about it and do the work, period. And it's for everybody to do. I agree. Yes. Yeah. So everything we've said so far has been basically a subliminal advertisement for Bitcoin. <laughs> so there's no need for us to 
go and rehash the fundamentals of why Bitcoin. But I, I'm curious about one thing that you said, which is that you're starting a new fund interested in uh, investing yeah. in Bitcoin. So I wanted to ask you a couple of things about it. Is, uh, first of all, where do you see the case in investing in companies other than just holding over buying sats? You know, why not just buy sats? And what is your case for not just buying sats and instead investing in the picks and shovels? And what kind of picks and shovels do you see as the investment case? And obviously, I understand it's still in an embryonic stage. So uh, if, if you're not comfortable discussing details, that's also perfectly fine. Yeah, I mean, there's only there's only so much I can say, right? But I think there are a lot of Bitcoin companies that are that are important. You know, um, making Bitcoin a medium of exchange, you know, actual currency that people can use, and that takes that takes infrastructure. You know, it doesn't just happen that we each have a phone and we can like it takes infrastructure to do that. It takes solid, trustworthy companies to do that. All of those lightning companies, you know, um, you know, there are cases for you to to have all of your savings in Bitcoin in the future. Every single dollar that you make goes into Bitcoin, you know, or whatever currency that you're in. However, what do you do when you need liquidity? Do you just sell that Bitcoin or do you actually, is there a way, is, do, are there companies out there that have it actually escrowed in uh, multi-sig, you know, multiple signature, uh, third-party trustworthy places where you can actually borrow against it? You know, is are there are there are there cases for that? Absolutely. You know, can you we need companies that'll allow you to buy houses through Bitcoin that will allow you to um you know financing anything you want to do. But we've got to have companies that'll do it in a different way than what the fiat companies have been doing. We can't have any more FTXs in Celsius. That's just it's untenable. We need act we need we need companies that will do this in a way that is that is actually trustworthy and, and can be proven that you your assets are what they are, where they are. And so uh, I think that there's, there's, and then of course there's mining, you know, there's the mining companies that are struggling right now because the prices have gone down. They bought all their, these ASICs, they got way over their ski tips on leverage, borrowing money against the assets that went down in value because ASICs are tied to the price of Bitcoin, the price of ASICs. And so, um, and for your your listeners who don't know what ASICs are, they're the computers that actually uh, solve the 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 algorithm in order to mine the Bitcoin. So um, there's some what we what we call distress in the in the in the Bitcoin world right now, and a lot of it is is just uh, you know because Bitcoin has been associated with all of these other garbage coins out there. Um, and so there's been a lot of pain and people had levered themselves in order to buy all these other things that went to zero. And now Bitcoin is being, it, it's, uh, it's taking, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's been, the price has been impacted negatively because of that. And so that's hurt a lot of these companies. So they had their venture rounds or early rounds where they were, uh, you know, they they finance their their operations at a valuation that can no longer be. You know, you 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 can't uh, argue for a valuation like that anymore because it's a different world. But these are still good companies that need money to go to move forward, and so I can't say too much because uh, you know it's uh, it's an it's an SEC regulated um, fund. But I can say that I I'm, I want to go out there and help these companies. 
uh, and I've got some good partners with me to do it. So, um, and we're excited and that, that's all I can say. I want to help the ecosystem and this is where I want to spend the, the remainder of my career. Excellent. Yeah. Um, would have been nice to get some free alpha, but, uh, <laughs> I tried at least. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's free. See, <laughs> I know. Absolutely. If it's free, you're the product. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, anybody else got any questions for James? Great. Really enjoyed the conversation as always. So thanks for all your insights. Sure. Absolutely. It's good to see you. So Lynn and I spoke a, a few days ago. Very smart. You're down in Mexico City. Right. Right. And I really enjoyed this whole group too. I'm not super uh, contributory in here safe, but I, I really enjoy all this, all the sessions and the guests. I mean, just an incredible uh, group of guests that are in here. So I was really happy to see you here. It's my birthday today. So this is my birthday ah, gift. Happy birthday. Birthday. <laughs> happy birthday. Happy birthday. I won't <laughs> sing for you. That's not one of my talents. <laughs> this, this was better. <laughs> <laughs> this is your 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 music. It's <laughs> awesome. Well, it's good seeing you. Thank thank you for saying hello, Lynn. Marquita, you want to say something? You want a question? Yeah, just quickly. I came in a little late, but right on time because I think you were talking about um, stay at home moms and how, or not necessarily stay at home moms, but how the family unit is um, compromised because women essentially have to work as opposed to. Um, having the luxury and I think privilege of staying at home with their children. And so since you were talking about CBDCs, I just had a quick, um, a quick thought, like sometimes when I'm, when I'm with other mommies and we have these play dates and, you know, I want to bring up Bitcoin. I want to bring up savings. One of the, one of the main things is they're always uh, afraid. There's so much fear that they would have to go back to work or they don't, mm -hmm. they want to contribute more to um, take some of the stress off of their husbands. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's, there's so much um, concern out there for these mothers and then their stress. And then, you know, that carries over into the energy that they also spill into their families. And so for me, I found Bitcoin to be a huge relief, whether we're, you know, at that hundred K or 1 million price now, or not, I have hope, right? I, I believe in um, the future. And we talked a lot about, you know, you guys talked a lot about doing something that's better for the future generation. And so in my conversation with these mommies, <laughs> I, I find it very difficult to break down a lot of the things that I learn um, on this mm -hmm. seminar, a lot of the things that um, I'm, I'm reading um, and, and staying away from mainstream media. And so that was a long-winded way of asking, do you have a way of delivering like a, just a top three reasons or a top five reasons why um, we yeah. need to adopt Bitcoin? Like, why would this be important for your children? How would this help your family? How would you be able to do something? Because moms always feel like they're not doing enough when they stay home, even though they're doing a tremendous amount. But society makes you feel like you're not doing enough. Or, yeah, no. you, you know. Those are great questions. And, uh, and I, you know, my, my, um, my kid's mom, they, they stayed home. She stayed home with them for a number of years and it was super important. And I feel it was absolutely uh, critical for my kids to, to, to get the kind of, of learning environment that the, just, just a, a, a positive and healthy environment for them to have 
their mom there as their primary caregiver every day. That's so I think it's incredible, um, in, incredibly important role. So good for you. And, uh, and I understand exactly what you're saying. And as far as talking to people about Bitcoin and getting them to understand it, what I really try to do is I, I ask them like, well, well, what do you think about inflation? Like, are you feeling it? Where are you seeing it? Like, and talk about inflation. And that's a really easy thing to, to just break the ice with and how terrible it's been. The price of gas has gone up. The price of meat has gone up. The price of milk, the eggs. I mean, eggs, really? $5, $6 for a, a carton of eggs? Are you kidding me? Like, that's just ridiculous, right? So those are easy things to point to and say, why do you think that is? Why do you think that we have inflation? And then the simple answer is, because the government prints money and gives it out to people who are closest to the government, the super rich, wealthy people, whether they're in banks or they're in investment funds or whatever, they are the closest ones to that spigot to, to benefit from that. And like Safe Dean was saying, they're able to borrow because they have enough money. They can borrow and they can uh, they can use that in order to make investments, and those investments just drive asset prices higher. Everything goes, everything is more expensive, and it's because of the manipulation of money. And so, just what I try to do is lead them down the path of: Do you feel inflation? Do you understand why that is? And do you understand the manipulation of money? And when once they really get to understand all of that. And you say, Bitcoin is the one, the one form of money. The, it's, it's the purest form of money that cannot be manipulated. And then you can just go into how it's decentralized. It's immutable. Uh, there, there, there's only a certain amount that will ever be made. And then they understand and it'll just click eventually. It might take two or three times, you know, but the, eventually it'll click and we'll go, okay, so how do I buy this? And then you make it really simple for them. Make sure they get it off the exchange eventually, very quickly, and uh, and you don't look. I, I'm an investor. I'm a risk manager. I've been doing this for far too long for me to see something and put all of my money into it. I'm just not like that. I just can't do it. But what I would say is, anybody who has discretionary capital, who has uh, investments, a portfolio of investments, just put a, a few percent into it. One, two, three percent into Bitcoin of your of your invested capital and you know eventually you'll want more but as a start what if we're all wrong what if what if safe and i are just absolutely horrifically wrong and and there's some way that bitcoin is devastated which i don't think there is i truly don't but non-zero chance right okay so you lost a percent or two percent or three percent but if we're right which I believe that we absolutely are, you're going to make 50 to 100 times that 1% or 2%. And it'll not only save your portfolio, but it'll make you wealthier on the other side. That's as simple as that. So I hope that answers your question. That was great. Yeah, no, thanks. You're welcome. Uh, James, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot more uh, fireworks in the bond markets and the fiat markets in general over the coming uh, months and years so we're going to be definitely having you on again to uh, <laughs> explain and break it down to well, us. I'd, I'd be happy to come on anytime say so thanks thanks for having me 
uh, it's been enjoyable. I, I, I loved our discussion and, and uh, I'm glad we hit on so many good topics. So I look forward to the next time. Awesome. Take care. Thank you.